It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Mike Playa, Chairman and CEO of PharmaPoint. Mike is a proven hands-on leader and senior executive with over 20 years of leadership and business experience in small, medium, and large companies. He's responsible for the overall performance of PharmaPoint, an innovative technology-enabled pharmacy management and software company focused on medication optimization and outpatient retail pharmacy management for hospitals, health systems, and physician groups. Prior to PharmaPoint, Mike served as a founder and chief operating officer of Source Medical, the largest nationwide provider and leading source of information technology solutions and other critical services for ambulatory surgery centers, specialty hospitals, and rehab clinics. Mike also co-founded Industrial Plex and served as executive vice president of business development. There, he focused on providing a full range of commercial equipment systems, maintenance, and professional services to national retail, food service, and industrial customers in the U.S., Canada, Middle East, and Asia. Following his graduation at West Point and his military service, Mike got his business career started at General Electric, working on the corporate audit staff and oversaw such initiatives as acquisition integrations, Six Sigma implementations, financial audits, and controllership assessments. He now lives in Birmingham, Alabama, where he was raised. Mike Playa, welcome into the corner office. Brent, I appreciate you having me. Oh, great to have you here. And we had a chance to chat a few weeks ago, and I'm sure lots been happening in your life. Certainly a lot of weather. What where, 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 where part of the country we catch you in today? Are you still experiencing winter as spring's front? <laughs> it seems to be uh, a little bit of both. You know, I'm a little based bit of in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, so we, <laughs> it's been cold, but cold is relative in Birmingham compared to many places. Indeed. So I'm not complaining. Lovely place. I've got a couple of clients there. I've been there many times, and uh, it's a great part of the country to be. Well, let's start about uh, your early story. We always like to kick it off where, uh, you know, you grew up and what your early family life was like. Give us a little outline what those days were like back then. Oh, absolutely. As I mentioned, I'm in Birmingham now, but I was also born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. So it was mm-hmm. a uh, I would say a pretty normal upbringing. Had a uh, loving family, great mother and father. I've got two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother and of course you know those are the days when I was coming up that there was not cell phones and there was not life 360 where you you knew your parents knew where you were all the time so it was uh, a great upbringing of go outside and play and be home before it's dark what kind of work did dad do and mom 
Yeah, my father worked uh, in the database as far as uh, the old school uh, IT world. So he uh-huh. spent a career doing that at uh, Liberty National Life Insurance and at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama. And, and my uh-huh. mother was, for the most part, uh, a stay-at-home mom, but she did uh-huh. do a lot of uh, work on the side to help uh, provide for the family. So it was a, a great family unit. We did all the things that uh, you would imagine, taking the, the summer trips to the beach and uh, spent a lot of time on the uh, the ball fields. That's where a lot of our, our early days were. I love it. Wait, so uh, what kind of balls did you play? Pretty much everything, baseball, football? I did. I, I played predominantly football and baseball since I was yeah. five years old and dabbled in a few other things like basketball here and there. But sure. those two were my love, football and baseball. The other ones kept you in shape between the seasons. Like that. <laughs> just just <laughs> something to, to, to keep me occupied, right? Keep me out of trouble. What about early influences? Uh, any, you know, particular things you remember from mom and dad that, uh, you know, stuck out in those early years? Well, like I mentioned, my, my parents were, they were always there for us and there was never a doubt that uh, we came first, which I guess would be a, an early leadership lesson. But yeah. a lot of my influences, I mentioned being on the ball field. I, I yeah. spent a lot of time out there and if you're, you're blessed at times to, to have youth coaches and, and high school coaches and others that spend a lot of time and, and invest their time and energy. And, and I can, you know, I can remember it like it's yesterday. I mean, Coach Brisbane, yeah. Coach Littleton, Coach Jones, Coach McFarland, all the, the youth league coaches that, that really had a, an early influence uh, all the way through through the grade school elementary years of having great teachers. What were some of the things you remembered, Mike, that they poured into you back then? Well, from a, from a coaching standpoint, uh, I think, you know, making sure that, that your, your effort is, is there, your attitude is there, and everybody's blessed with a different amount, amount of ability. But as we yeah. know, as we get older, we learn that, you know, your, your ability is, is kind of what you're, you're gifted with, but your attitude will really determine how well you can do something. So just those constant messages, but making it fun. So being able to learn to compete and, and do those type of things and, and learn who you associate with matters a lot, mm-hmm. you know, even as a kid, because the influences on your life as you're developing are, are so impactful. Yeah, yeah. Were you a good student in school? I, I was. Um, you know, I, I always had the mindset and I guess that's part of being a competitor is you want to do great at, at whatever you do. So I always mm-hmm. uh, made school a priority and that's a, you know, that's something that my parents had imparted on me that academics come first. So uh, I knew that if I was not excelling in school, then I was not going to get to participate in athletics. So they knew how to motivate <laughs> me, uh, but it always did. And, you know, you train the brain just like you train the body, right? And at mm-hmm. some point in time, uh, athletics will go away and, and you've got to, to make things happen uh, intellectually. So I uh, always enjoyed school as well. Other things other than school you're involved with? Any other extracurricular activities, school government, music, theater? You know, I, I did some school government um, more in the, in the middle school area. I went to yeah. a... Uh, I went to a Catholic, I actually went to a public school uh, as I was growing up in elementary and moved in seventh grade to a a Catholic school the first year it opened. So I went from maybe 250 kids in a, in a grade to, I think we had 16. So that was uh, quite a quite a different swing. And of course, when you have 16 and you want to run for student council, for example, it's, it's not, not a whole lot of competition, but um, I did a little, but when I got to high school between athletics and, and, the, and the academic wor- workload that I had, I didn't have a whole lot of time to do much more than that. All right. 
any entrepreneurial things as a kid, you know, the paper route or mowing lawns or anything like that? You know, Brent, I don't know if I would call it entrepreneurial. I mostly made some extra money when I had some, with the limited spare time I had. So I would cut grass, do odd jobs here and there. I did some, you know, even in high school, I worked with a law firm sometimes as a runner, just little things that I could could squeeze in. I don't know, again, if I'd call it uh, necessarily entrepreneurial, but it was a, it was a way to make some extra cash to to have a little bit of fun and do it, keep my other, other obligations uh, intact. How'd you have fun with that pocket money? What kind of things did you do? Well, uh, if my kids weren't going to listen to this, I'd probably tell you. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think I would. You know, I, uh, it was, uh, you know, obviously when you're when you're in high school and uh, you've got good friends, and we just we hung out a lot and wanted to do a lot of things on our own. And you know, my parents worked really hard, and you know, I always felt like it was not necessarily their their job to to provide fun for me so we we found ways to have fun and do those things but um yeah it's it's you know i was like it's a normal normal high school debauchery i would say <laughs> that's a good way to describe it well you went off to west point and uh you know that's a wonderful accomplishment thank you so much for your years of service I want to talk about that a little bit but what what made you decide to uh to apply there you know, Brent, I was blessed to go through uh, the recruiting with uh, football and baseball. So I had some some success in high school with football and baseball. So I was getting a lot of interest. Uh, I th- actually think the first letter I got from West Point, I don't even think I opened. I wasn't really sure what, what West Point was. I did not right. come from a military family, did not um, have anybody that really uh, spoke about the military much. But I was very realistic about uh, my future uh, in athletics post-college. Um, mm. I wanted to, to make sure that uh, I had a, a very solid foundation for success uh, outside of athletics. So as I went through that process, I really narrowed it down uh, to where I thought academically uh, provided me the most upside. So I looked at the Naval Academy. I looked at West mm. Point and, and I looked at Vanderbilt. Those were really the three schools that were recruiting me that we're going to allow me to play both football and baseball, but I felt like really set me up for success beyond uh, college. And, but yeah. something about West Point just grabbed me. I, w- I will tell you as a, as an 18 year old kid, it was probably the worst recruiting visit I took as it relates to, to okay. athletics. It's just, there's not a lot, um, there's not a lot going on right up in, mm-hmm. up at West Point. It's got a different focus, different mission, uh, but something about the place when you're there, just mm-hmm. it just captivates you. It's, uh, yeah. you know, it's one of those areas, you know, it's a, a development program, premier leadership institution. Uh, and it really just represented the best of the best. And, and mm-hmm. I just wanted to be a part of that. And it, yeah. it just grabbed a hold of me when I when I visited it. And it became a, a goal to uh, to finish there. That's great. And did you play both baseball and uh, and football there? I did. I, I went there as a, a quarterback and a, and a shortstop wow. and played quarterback the, my, my freshman year. Uh, but then I got moved to linebacker. So I may hmm. tell you either how fast I was or how bad my arm was, one, of the, one, <laughs> one <laughs> or the other. But once, uh, once I transformed from a quarterback body to a linebacker body, 
the baseball coach ended up moving me to third base. So I went from, from shortstop to third, but uh, I had a blast. I, I enjoyed uh, both sports quite a bit, made uh, some great friends, uh, guys that, that are that I call brothers to this day. My kids call them uncles. Um, yeah. You just, you, you, you know, you, the military in West Point is one area where you create great bonds and then you add a locker room on top of that and it's even a deeper bond. So right. uh, great friends and great uh, relationships that I made there. That's awesome. And then uh, four or five years of service after that, what, what, what happened immediately after this? I went, uh, I went into the field artillery. And, yeah. But actually, my, my very first job in the Army was a graduate assistant baseball coach at West Point. Ah, so really? I yeah. stayed on as the uh, graduate assistant coach and uh, spent some time doing that, which I, I've always had a passion and maintain right. a passion for coaching today. Uh, yeah. But I went on into the uh, field artillery and went to airborne school, went to uh, the Paladin Commander course, which is part of the new artillery system that was coming out at that time. And then spent some time at Fort Hood, Texas. Yeah. And, and any active duty at all during that period of time? Like, I was never, never deployed. I did uh, my, my stand at Fort Hood and uh, tell you, it was one of the tough decisions I made to get out of the army. I absolutely loved uh, the army. Uh, To me, it was uh, the epitome of, of being able to lead and, the camaraderie that you have with the soldiers and, and it's, it's a lot like an athletic team at the end of the day, you, yeah, you train right. together and you're training for competition. Uh, so I really uh, enjoyed it. I don't think there's a more honorable profession than, mm. than the armed services for what they're asked to do. Uh, so I really enjoyed it. And I just felt at that time as if I had to make a decision, was this going to be my career? And yeah. if it was not going to be my career, was I best served by getting started in another endeavor? It was what is what I ended up doing. It's one of the hardest discussions I ever had. I had a lot yeah. of respect for my battery commander, uh, who was a captain at the time that was uh, always trying to develop me and um, yeah. having to go in and, and tell him that I had decided to, uh, get out of the military was, was one of the hardest uh, discussions I had. Matter of fact, the first time I walked in, uh, before I could say anything, he said, Hey, let me show you this. I've put this binder together for you. These are all the things that you're going to need as your commander. And I just, I took the binder and said, thank you. I walked back out. <laughs> so I had to, I had to find a way to come back in and have the conversation with him. Cause I, you know, he was, a he was a great leader for me and, yeah. and as great leaders do, I didn't want to let him down. And I felt like I was letting him down, but I knew I had to make that decision that I felt was in the best interest of myself at that point in time. What tipped the scale for you? Like what, what made you decide to go into private you know, life or private corporation rather than? Being- I will tell you that uh, probably, you know, in the early 20s, uh, probably a lot of it was naivety, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years sounds like a lifetime when you're yeah. in your early 20s. Yeah. And I felt like, well, 20 years, my, my life's you know, passed me by. And the reality of it is not, you know, I've got a lot of uh, great friends that, that had great careers and, and they retired and they started into a new endeavor. And right. uh, just, you know, at that point in time, and I think, you know, God has a path for us all. And so I don't, I don't yeah. ever look back. I don't ever question decisions at that point in time, but that's really what was going through my head at that point in time is, is this where I'm going to spend my life? Right. Right. What was that first job you took when you left the army? 
you know, I took a job with GE and yeah, uh, it's interesting during that, that point in time, I was uh, taking some Jack Welch years, right? In the late it 90s. was during the Welch years. And, and I, and I will tell you, Brent, I was, you know, I was, I know I've used the word blessed a lot, but it, it's how I feel uh, when I look back over time, I probably got to spend my time in three of the best leadership institutions uh, that exist. I mean, going mm. from West Point, which is your premier leadership uh, institution as a, as a university, if you will, a college, uh, to the U.S. Army, which is right. a leadership development program in itself, to GE at that time, which under Jack Welch had really had a distinct focus on developing right. leaders. And yeah. I was looking to, I really was not even looking to get into corporate America so early. I was actually going to go back and get an MBA and they had a career uh, conference for junior military officers. I went to it. I interviewed for some jobs to see what was out there. And at that point in time, Jack Welch was having JMOs, junior military officers come into a leadership program which was an element called the corporate audit staff, which is where mm. GE was taking a lot of their up and coming leaders, their top 10% of different programs. And they were allowing junior military officers to join. And I ended up taking that opportunity. It was 100% travel. It was going to a different GE business four months at a time. So wow. you're learning a whole different business and it was intense. I mean, it was long hours, uh, a lot of days, uh, six days a week, uh, really just driving hard, living in hotels. But you learn so much by, by jumping into the fire. And it's, you know, it's one of those, I would probably say in my whole career, one of the biggest times that I had to really overcome self-doubt mm. and learn that, um, you know, self-doubt can, can be your enemy, right? With, with mm -hmm. confidence, you, you become confident through preparation. And I think confidence is one of the, the key leadership attributes to have. But walking into a program that folks said that were very good, very smart, have been in business for a while, uh, and I didn't quite really understand anything about the business world other than classes I took in college. And, right. and it was, uh, I think, the first... I left, you know, I was crawling in the mud and two weeks later I'm, I'm at GE and uh, they did a quick training assessment program. I got sent to Waukesha, Wisconsin on a, a team with uh, GE Medical uh, who had just accomplished an acquisition, completed an acquisition. So our job was to do an acquisition integration and my my manager at the time had kind of divided the team up and he said, hey, Playa, go to Nashville, this company service business we just bought work with their CFO, break down their P&L, break down, the, you know, five years of the balance sheet, look for any variances, any trends. And, and this is like a foreign language to me. So wow. yeah. you know, my, my response was, I got it. I got on a plane. I, I landed <laughs> in Nashville. I drove to the bookstore. <laughs> I bought some, some books on, on finance and, you know, I had my questions written down. I went and met with the CFO and as he, I finally just said, why don't you give me all the information and I'll come back to you if, you, if I have any questions. So, uh, but I was able to, to kind of overcome that just really through hard work. I just said, I'm, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to figure it out. Uh, so it forced me to learn a lot of different aspects of business over that period of time. So there was not a, a better opportunity for me to transition from the military into corporate America than that role at that company at that time. 
Yeah. You talked about leadership in those three organizations, West Point, of course, the military and then GE. What, what would you say is kind of the common thread of all three that you felt, you know, kind of got reinforced over those first few years of, uh, of your service and your work? Well, I, I took the initiative early on to, to keep a journal and I would always mm. keep a journal on, on the leaders I had. And I was uh, in a great scenario where I had multiple leaders uh, over uh, multiple time periods. So I would keep a journal on what this person did that, that motivated me, that inspired me. And I would also keep a journal on the type of things that this person may have done that, that disabled me, right. That didn't, did not motivate me, that did not inspire me. Uh, and I, and I kept that for some time. And it's interesting how you can take good and bad from every leader. Uh, It doesn't make them a bad leader. It doesn't make them a good leader. Just there's different attributes, uh, that, that you look at consistency. The thing that, that, that I saw that, I thought was one of the most important was how quickly you would understand whether that leader cared for you above themselves or did they care for themselves above you, mm. right? Did they serve their team first? And I, I believe the highest calling for what we are put on this earth is to serve our fellow man. And I think that's very true for leaders and it's mm. transparent. Uh, the people following you will see that right away, whether it's in corporate America, whether it's, coaching an athletic team, whatever that may be, if you can serve them. And, and I saw a saying years ago that said, if ser- serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. And I believe that <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's transparent. And I, and I saw it in the military, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. officers that ate before their soldiers ate or officers that waited until all the soldiers ate. And then they ate. And that, that in mm-hmm. itself, without a single word being said, sends a message to those people, those soldiers you're trying to lead that, you are first, I am second. And I think that carries a lot more weight, uh, at least it has for me over the years. Interesting. Did you see that at GE as well? I did. And it was very interesting. GE was a little bit, the, the environment that I was in at that time, like I said, was a lot of up and comer leaders that were very smart and it was very competitive. It was, uh, and, and for me, where it was a little bit different, where they had an advantage in the business world and their knowledge and their experience and what they knew, I had an advantage on leadership because many of these uh, folks had not ever led. So they were trying to understand. So where I had self-doubt on the knowledge component, there was a lot where they had self-doubt on the leadership piece. So there was things that I would see uh, that I could quickly, quickly pick up on. And not that they would ask me for my advice, but you know, I would, right. I would see the things that they were stumbling on that that I was privileged enough to learn a, a lot earlier in, in yeah. time. So, you know, and a lot of that is, you know, I'll give you an example of, of leading from the front. You know, it's another core mm-hmm. leadership trait I believe in. You know, don't ask people to do things that you're not willing to do yourself. So, you know, when you have leaders that are that are demanding a lot from you, but they're not willing to spend that same same time and effort. Uh, it sends a message. And so making sure that they know you care, making sure that you leave from the front, making sure that you stay positive. You know, it's hard. Life is tough. Life is tough. It's, it throws adversity at you all the time, whether it's on the personal front or on the business front. But you still control 
that mentality. It's an inside out decision that I'm going to stay positive. And if you can do that, it's contagious to your team. If you're always negative as a leader because of whatever's going on around you, it's contagious as well to your team. So maintaining that positive, leading from the front and making sure that they understand that, that you are putting them in front of you. Uh, that in itself enables you to go a lot further with that team than you would be in, in any other scenario. So true. So true. Well, after a couple of years at GE, you, you pretty much pursued entrepreneurial activities after that. You've had a number of successful startups since then. What, what was kind of the inspiration for that, for you to kind of move out of the corporate world and, and go, you know, explore some paths on your own? You know, it's, um, I love to say that it was originally my idea, <laughs> but it, <laughs> but it wasn't uh, my my first uh, entrepreneurial opportunity. A, a gentleman by the name of Jason Grease that I worked with at GE. He was uh, on that corporate audit staff. He was actually my first manager uh, right. at that GE uh, medical endeavor, and uh, extremely smart man. Just uh, just very very smart. Uh, and he had called me. He had moved on from the corporate audit staff. I think he was at uh, NBC uh, working with corporate mergers and acquisitions, doing some things to that degree. And it was around, if you remember the the late uh, 1990s, if you will, when we had the big Internet bubble that was was going on. And he had called me one day. They were doing acquisitions and you know they were paying a lot of money for things that really had a lot of eyeballs, but not necessarily a, a lot of profit. And. Uh, he had some ideas and asked me if I wanted to partner with him. And, you know, at that point in time, I was I was single and I didn't really have a whole lot of responsibility. And I said, it sounds great. Late 20s at the time or early 30s, Mike? What time uh, I would say, yeah, mid to mid to late 20s. Mid to late 20s, yeah. Yeah, yeah so we, uh, we, we had launched a company in, in Atlanta uh, that was really focused on uh, the back-end automation of the supply chain, which mm-hmm. sounds very elementary today, but at that point in time, uh, it really wasn't. It was looking at electronic purchase orders, electronic mm-hmm. re- remittance orders. We even did reverse auctions on the supply chain. We did some Six Sigma quality training and a lot of the different things to really get a, a company launched. And we had some big clients. We had uh, Home Depot and, wow. and GE Power and uh, so we had a lot of success, and that's really where I got that that bug, if you will, yeah, of right. you know we can we can build something. And uh, one of the engagements we had was in healthcare. Uh, so the next uh, vision for a business plan was written uh, with that concept in mind of healthcare. And looking at healthcare at that point in time was the patient was the patients were moving very much more into the outpatient setting, mm. uh, outpatient uh, physical therapy, outpatient uh, radiology, ambulatory surgery centers. It was really moving out of the hospital, but a lot of the healthcare IT landscape was still focused on the hospital setting. It was very fragmented, wow. very mom and popish in the uh, outpatient setting. And barring what uh, what Jack Welch used to always preach at GE, he said, be number one or number two in, in a market or don't play in that market. Right. So the original business plan said we're going to own each of these outpatient spaces in uh, the the uh, healthcare IT space and software. So raised some capital and made a couple of acquisitions and actually went back and tried to hire some folks out of GE because I knew they were very well trained. Right, right. Uh, we, we grew that to probably 6,000 or so uh, clinics. So wow. it was uh, 
Great endeavor. Uh, still always opportunities to learn. I've always tried to maintain a growth mindset that, um, that is one of the things West Point taught me. West Point forces you out of your comfort zone. Right? Wow. You, you're never in a comfort zone. So, uh, But you also start to realize that nothing great ever happens in your comfort zone. So <laughs> if you want to be an entrepreneur, you, you've got to get used to that because you're never in your comfort zone. You're always in a growth mindset and learning. So that's really uh, what enabled me to move on from there was what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What can I grow in? And, and I learned a lot there. We raised a lot of money, but um, – I learned a lot about managing a board. I was very young. I learned a lot about uh, how the capital structure works with private equity coming in. Uh, so it, it was a lot of great lessons learned there too. But that company eventually uh, exited and was sold uh, to Avery Partners. And, and who was that? Which company was that? Uh, was Source Medical. Source Medical. Right. Yeah. So I, I jumped ahead on you, but it kind of flows, flows yeah. together that they kept me on that entrepreneur uh, sprint, if you will. But that brought me back to Birmingham, by the way. Yeah. Just to yeah. Come full circle. I was uh, in Atlanta, uh, moved and started this company in Birmingham. And it's, it was around that time uh, before I moved is where I'd met my my future, my now wife, I should say. But back then would have been my future wife. But uh, that brought me back to Birmingham. Right. Cool. Now, tell us about PharmaPoint. How, how did that evolve? I know you've been doing this for about 12 years or so now and uh, founded the company. Or is that a company that you purchased? Somewhat of a, a combination, if you will. I had, uh, when I left Source Medical, I did my own, uh, what I would call private equity type investing. I, I got into uh, media. I did, bought some TV stations uh, with some uh, different partners I'd work with. I did some real estate development, but I always focused on healthcare because I'd gotten to be very fond of healthcare and I felt like I understood that landscape. And I'd made an investment in a company in California that. I had moved to Birmingham and put a leadership team uh, over that company. And and that company at that time focused on what would be more of physician dispensing. So mm-hmm. that's enabling a physician to dispense medications, generic medications directly from, from their office. And I felt like that made a lot of sense at the time. Uh, but as I, as I tracked and I was on the board of that company, it really wasn't growing much, and, and it's a heavy, high-volume, low-margin uh, game. So it looked like it was a, a challenging growth model. Uh, but what was enticing is I looked at healthcare moving towards value-based care, looking more at how do we drive outcomes for these patients, and realizing that 90-plus percent of the time, we treat patients with prescription medication. It's the largest therapeutic treatment for any disease state that pharmacy needed to be in that care continuum to drive those outcomes, but the dispensing model wasn't quite it. So came up with a new model that was actually now creating the entire pharmacy at the point of care. So hence the name Pharma Point, uh, pharmacy at the point of care. I rebranded it, created a new name, put a new leadership team in place and stepped in as CEO and we took it from there and just took it in a different direction. And that mm. was really the birth of, of Pharma Point. hired the, the right uh, personnel, the right leadership team that understood pharmacy. And we took it from there and we focused on uh, physician clinics to start with. So in that model, uh, we don't expect physicians, don't expect hospitals or health systems to really understand retail that's what we do. So we would actually create, build, manage, staff that retail pharmacy that's owned by that provider. Right. 
Well, it's really kind of a servant leadership approach too, isn't it? It, it really is. I mean, at the end of the day, it's how do we get patients better and yeah. how do we enable uh, the yeah. provider to treat patients and, and yeah. get them on their treatment plan. And, and we learned it a lot. You hear about lack of adherence, for example, uh, patients not getting their medications, not staying on their medications. And to me, uh, a lot of that is education, right? It's usually a conscious decision that someone's not taking their medication. Either they can't afford it, right. uh, it gives bad side effects, whatever that may be. And, and, and I think that's exacerbated over the years because retail pharmacy has been disjointed from the care continuum. It used right. to be you would write a prescription and you didn't really know as a provider, did my patient get their medicine or did they not? There right. was no way to really know. So yeah. you didn't know if they were getting better or not getting better. So that's what caused a lot of the wasted cost in healthcare patients going back to the doctor, getting mm. readmitted back to the hospital. And it's simply not that the provider didn't diagnose the patient and put them on the right treatment plan. It's the patient didn't necessarily follow through on the treatment plan for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And how many employees today, Mike? Uh, we're sitting at about 65 yeah. employees. Um, yeah. We're across the United States. I uh, work with a lot of health systems and a lot of these employees, you know, we'll staff the pharmacy. So, you know, if we have a pharmacy, um, let's say in, in Chicago, uh, where we have pharmacies, uh, that's our pharmacist that runs the pharmacy. It's yeah. our technicians. It's our staff that we manage, which I will tell you has been a very um, interesting dynamic because we have you know 65 or so employees, but we also have another 75 or so uh, folks that we manage, meaning we, right. may, we take over pharmacies for health systems and hospitals as well. And so we manage those employees of the current health system so we're managing them. They're just not our employees. Right. Now, the challenge it gets to, which has been a unique challenge for me, I've, I've always felt like I've seen about as many different leadership scenarios uh, as possible. But the challenge is we have professionals that are running pharmacies. It's not as if I can do a culture call, for example, say, hey, at 12 o'clock on Wednesday, <laughs> let's get everybody on the phone and because they're treating patients. Yeah. And you're also not going to ask them to – uh, spend time after work to, to get on a call. So it, it's made it an interesting dynamic on how you build unity and build a really good defined culture that can enable success when you are mostly remote and mostly not able to get everybody in the same place at once. Well, you're setting me up for my next question, Mike. How do you do it? Because, you know, if your focus really is on care and your people are always caring for, you know, your clients, your customers, how, how do you do to build out that culture? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And one that uh, I spend a lot of time, you know, historically thinking through, because I, I believe to have a great culture, everyone must have a commitment to a common shared purpose. Yeah. And you've also got to have shared values and shared behaviors and a shared mindset. And so to get everybody in that, on that same page uh, becomes a challenge. And so, you know, instead of doing things like routine, uh, company calls. And we still do that for those that, that we can get on the phone and we'll still do some of those culture building. But we we developed a mantra around execution that we mm. wanted to push out across the board because we we felt like we had we had a great vision. We were in the right space. We had a lot of 
uh, health systems, a lot of clients that needed our service. It was really about how well can we execute. And so instead of just having a PowerPoint to throw up, what we actually did was created a, a mantra called CODA, which is, talks about accountability. So know it, own it, deliver it, and answer for it. And, and each of those have different definitions to it. But the question was, how do we get that to really take hold in the company? So we had a competition. So we had different uh, pharmacies, different parts of the organization and to come together and they were tasked with creating a mascot for CODA, a mascot for that execution accountability mantra, which got them all talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. So we put a, a bonus for the, the team that won, uh, we got a, a bonus. So they're working towards that bonus. They're getting creative and we saw some great things. We had some great different, um, mascots, if you will, that came forward. But what it actually did was had them talking about it amongst themselves. So instead of having a 30 minute, one hour call, yeah. we had them talking about it amongst themselves. And we had a big event. I had uh, what I call, I don't know if we call them celebrity judges or not, but uh, some, some friends of mine I know that have had success, whether it's in you know professional sports, whether it was in Hollywood, uh, some different places that came on and, and listened and watched the presentations. I went into another room, they voted on it, and we gave a winner, and then we built a branding marketing campaign mm. around that coda, which ended up being four uh, superhero type um, shadows, if you will, that had a K and an O and a D and an A on it with the capes mm. flying and, and our color. So now we have mouse pads, we have coffee cups, we have everything <laughs> that's tied to that that gets shipped out. So, but the biggest thing to, to get the culture to take place was mm. going through something a little bit different than just a normal call. It was having this competition yeah. that really got them talking about it amongst themselves. And they owned it too and they owned it and yeah. that's the key i mean you can't be accountable for something unless you know it right and, right. and know about it so that's you know part of that is teaching leadership to the to our senior leaders on making sure your people know what they're accountable for yeah. uh, but also making sure you own it i use an example on ownership all the time i you know when i had a um, development company in the construction company that worked with it for some reason brand i had a rental car for a year I didn't, I, you know, I had a car that, uh, I didn't buy a new car. I just had a rental car. But the question I asked our entire employee base was how many times do you think I washed that car? How many times do you think I changed the oil? I didn't because I didn't own it. Right. Right. So there's a difference when you feel ownership for something that sure. you really take accountability. So you've got to make sure your team knows what they're accountable for and then make sure they own it when they are. And that's just, again, gets back to execution. Yeah. That's great. Great point. Mike, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? You know, I, I look a lot for referrals um, for, you know, that's one area you can't always have that obviously, but if I have people I trust, because uh, I think trust is one of the biggest words uh, that's not used enough in building a strong team, right? Mm -hmm. If you if your team trusts you and trust each other and you trust them. Uh, so I trust what, what the people I have working for me have to say about other people. Uh, so I look for that a lot, but the yeah. other, I tell you, I don't, I'm not a, even though we're in pharmacy and there's some levels of expertise we have to have, meaning I can't put somebody that's not a pharmacist in as a pharmacist, right? So there's yeah. certain backgrounds you have to have, but when sure. you look at the, the regular kind of corporate jobs, I look more for the grit uh, mm -hmm. of that person. I look 
more for their, their attitude. I can teach them the industry. I can teach them these different roles, but you know, it's, it's, do you work towards results or do you punch a clock or do you Mm -hmm. come in and work eight to five and you're ready to go home? uh, Or do you really work towards results? And there's a different mindset when you get people working towards results versus just showing up and punching a clock. And I think, you know, when you're small, this is what's fun about being an entrepreneur. You get to go through every stage of a company. Uh, When you're small, you wear all these different hats. You really never accomplish everything you want to accomplish in a day Mm -hmm. because you have a list of stuff you want to proactively do. And then you have stuff that hits you during the day that you're very reactive to, right? right? Because you wear so many different hats. And as you scale the company, you get to start taking hats off. And leaders in your company get to start taking hats off. But the opportunity it also gives every employee is this company is either going to grow under you or it's going to grow around you. Mm. And that's your decision. And what really differentiates whether it grows under you is your attitude and your grit towards Am I going to execute consistently with a positive attitude and get the results? Or am I going to come to work, show up, do what I can do during the day, wait till it hits five o'clock and, and leave? Uh, you know, and it's, it's harder to manage that as a company grows in size, right? Because people can, can hide sometimes when it gets bigger. And not everybody's made the same. And I realize that. That's a lesson. One of the biggest lessons I had to learn in leadership is everybody's a little bit different. They have different backgrounds. They have different beliefs. They have different goals they have different things that incentivize them and and you've kind of got to figure out what that is because they're not all going to operate like you operate that's right that's right do you have a favorite interview question or an interview scenario that kind of helps you get to that i you know a lot of times i'll ask the question and do you work on a schedule or do you work for results yeah and you know if someone hasn't really thought through that question uh before uh, their their immediate response is is Usually, you know, we'll we'll tell you what they're thinking. And the other that I often use is getting more around self-awareness, right? Understanding, do they have a growth mindset, right? Mm -hmm. Or they have a fixed mindset and they're content with where they are. Are they willing to learn? Are they willing to fail so that they can learn? So a lot of times asking around self-awareness, like what are uh, some of the things that that challenge you? What are some of the things you need to work on? And some people actually have an answer to that and some don't. So I really like the ones that actually have an answer to that. And a lot of people are afraid to answer that question because they think that it's showing them in a bad light. In reality, it's showing that you're very self-aware right. of what you need to work on, which means you will get better at that. Yeah, great. Well, Mike, you've been very generous with your time, but we always have one last question we ask all our CEO guests, and that's what kind of career or life advice would you give someone who maybe has their eyes on the corner office or maybe wants to be an entrepreneur like you someday? Well, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, I would <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, be prepared to fail. And, <laughs> right, right. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. And yeah. I, I don't mean... You know, a lot of people may hear that and say, well, that's that's a bad thing. Failure is not a bad thing. You, you don't grow unless you fail. You you don't uh, you know, if you're not if you've never failed, you've never tried. You've never taken a chance. You're going to uh, you're going to run into challenges. You're going to uh, face a lot of adversity. It's never going to go exactly like you think it's going to go. I've seen more. Uh, presentations. I get to sit on both sides, right? I'm an entrepreneur, but at the same time, I've also made investments. I get to sit on both sides. And and I always laugh when you see this initial business plan and these initial growth charts based on, you know, let's say a percentage of the market. And I say, it's never, it's never going to be perfect, right? You got to be prepared to turn 
to turn the wheel. You got to be prepared to adapt to to the what you face. You've got to be able to handle adversity because you know if you can't overcome adversity, no one will ever know who you are. That's right. It just they just won't because it's the ones that can can tackle adversity and keep moving forward and keep moving forward. And those that that hit adversity and stop uh, are the ones that are challenged. And that goes back to execution, because I think there's a lot of great ideas. I think people have had great ideas for a long time. The key is, do you execute them? There's a there's a lot of great ideas that have stuck on the sideline because the first challenge someone hit or faced, they stopped. Just keep turning the wheel. You know, I have, I've had investors ask me on my own company, you know, can you give me a, a five-year uh, plan? And if, if, if I'm exactly in five years where I tell you I am now, you should fire me. Yeah. Because I didn't adjust to the marketplace to give you a five-year plan. Things change so fast now. And the ability to adapt to that and, and respond to adversity. Look, we started out in PharmaPoint. Like I said, it started out as a dispensing company, turned into a pharmacy point of care, and now we have technology and software, which we is taking the forefront. So we've become more of a software company than we have anything. So it's moving to what the market gives you. But if you're an entrepreneur, write your plan, listen to the marketplace, hire great people around you, but you got to be prepared to wake up thinking about this and go to bed thinking about this because it is, it is a, a challenging endeavor and, and not many people are successful at it. So you got to have a great vision and a great idea, but the execution part of it is, is what's most important. And I would say if you don't go that route and you want to get to the, the CEO chair, you know, learn to lead, you know, outwork everybody. Uh, I'm still a big believer in outworking uh, those. That doesn't mean not have a balance in life. That was a lesson, again, I had to learn myself. Uh, have a balance, but be prepared to work and work hard. And nothing nothing comes easy. Nothing is, no one's entitled to anything. No one's entitled because I've been here 20 years. I get that mm-hmm. job next. There's no such thing as a participation paycheck. You still have to earn a, a paycheck every day, right. right? So it's fighting those different mentalities. But at the end of the day, hard work seems to outweigh everything. Great, great counsel. And Michael Platt, chairman and chief executive officer of Farmer Point, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Brent, my pleasure. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.